0: and James can be tough to find, it's after Hebrews, which can be tough to find. (laughs) Chapter 4 verses 4 through 10. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would make this more and more true in our lives, that we would be conformed into the image of your Son, who is the Word. We ask you in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The topic... Uh, of the message, the title of the message is Submit to God, and submission and humility go hand in hand. And so what this sermon will attempt to do is increase your humility, and so you Husker fans may be excused. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, If you want to stick around, uh, I think you can benefit from it, but uh, it was a sad day yesterday. I was trying to actually do this while watching the game, but, oh, talk about humility. (laughs) Um, Up is good, and down is bad, right, in our world, in our culture. This is kind of a truism. We might get a raise or a promotion. Both of those words are up, or we might get a salary reduction or a demotion, down, up is good, down is bad. The value of our stocks might go up, the value of our stocks might go down. A critic might give a movie a thumbs up or a thumbs down, good, bad. And even last week, the central theme in the message was, why are you cast down, oh my soul? And so down was a bad thing. Down is bad, up is good. So this is, I think, relatively true. For our world. There are lots of things that do this. For instance, when we're down, we might not want to go to church. We might not want to go to work. So when we're down, we're faced with that challenge. And so when we're down, we don't want to pretend to be up. And sometimes I think that that's what we feel we have to do if we come to church. We have to pretend to be up. But nowhere in Scripture does it says. Be ye up, as I am up, right? You can come to church down. And I'm reminded that about a year and a half ago, my wife came to church very down. As a matter of fact, some of you asked her about it, and she just said she was in her sunglasses and her dark coat, and she just said, I'm in a very dark place. And as I reflected on it, I thought, you know, she's doing, I think, what we all should be comfortable doing. Now, she didn't want to talk about it, But you could have prayed for her, knowing that she was in that dark place that she spoke of. And you can, maybe throughout the week, following call, maybe when it's a better time. But even then, I think, it's encouraging for people that are down to be asked, would you like to talk about it? That's why we come here. It isn't that we come here to pretend to be up, to pretend that we have it all together. We come here to be ministered to. And so we don't want to pretend. You want a transparent church. You are the church. Be transparent. Now, what does being up or down have to do with the text I just read? Well, the text I just read, all of James 4, 1 through 10, is all about pride versus humility. It's about rebellion versus submission. It's about up and down, but they're reversed. Pride puffs you up. Humility brings you low. Up is regarded as bad here. Down is regarded as good. In rebellion, you rise up. And yet, in submission, you go down. You submit. And again, bad and good, these are reversed. Peter tells us, and the text is actually quite similar to what I've read in James. They're they're very different. You could preach two totally different sermons from them, but it's quite similar to this. And in that uh, section, 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So see, both of those then are up. They're both good. Humbling yourselves is down exalting you is up but both the down and the up are referred to as good things so see down and up aren't always the bad and the good the good and the bad they can be reversed they can be mixed up and i think what it has to do here especially in this context is that if you have placed yourself on a pedestal of pride then you must come down you will come down you can step down through humility that you bring on yourself or eventually, God will take you down. And it will not most likely be pleasant. God seems to like to take people down publicly in their pride. We have evidence of it now going on down in Georgia with that pastor. Uh, Just pastors experiencing this immolation of character. It's sad, but all too true. These pastors are under attack. These pastors that indulge in these secret sins and think they can hide it can only hide it until God wants to take them down, and God is taking that man down. So, before I go too deeply into this whole thing about pride and humility, submission and rebellion, I want to structure what we're going to focus on, and that's verses 4 through 10, in verses 1 through 3, which I didn't read, and so I'll read those now. This is kind of famous. I mean, most of us are probably familiar with this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have, because you do not ask. God has it all, right? We just think we can get it apart from Him. You ask, so now here we are asking. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures." So even when we do ask God, we often ask with the wrong motives. And this is critical to founding what we're going to talk about, because what he's talking about here in verses 1 through 3 is a misdirection of your worldview, of our worldview. And so we'll get to that. In verse 4, we'll refer back to this, and I'll show you how they connect to one another. But, before I do that, I have to talk about this. Adulterers and adulteresses. Can you imagine me calling you that? I can't. And yet, that's exactly what James calls these people that he's writing this letter to. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And so, it's obvious to me that this book of James is scripture. Because no human would get away with that, right? Right? You have to have the authority of God behind you to say such things, and he does. He says those things, and he gets away with them. And this harkens back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament spoke like this. The prophets of old spoke like this. Let me quote a few. In Jeremiah, he said of Israel that they committed adultery with stones and trees. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? They committed adultery with stones and trees. Ezekiel said, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. And Hosea, the whole book is dedicated to this topic because God commands uh, Hosea to go marry a harlot, commands her to marry a harlot. And he wants Hosea's life with his harlot wife to be a symbol of what he himself is experiencing with these wayward Jews. So he has Hosea live out for all to see what he himself is experiencing. And now this is not just the Old Testament, this strong type of language. Jesus himself used it. The Pharisees and the scribes came to him and they asked for a sign. He had been preaching at them and they were fed up with it. And they said, show us a sign. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign and none will be given it except that of the prophet Jonah. An evil and adulterous generation. So we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is being spoken of here? What are the Jews being committed, being uh, uh, accused of adultery for? And what is James accusing his readers of when he accuses them of adultery? But, before we answer that question, We need to go back to verses 1 through 3 because I want to get to this. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Somehow this sentence, this greeting, adulterers and adulteresses, this this, uh, accusation and this sentence, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Somehow this sentence makes sense then of verses 1, 2, and 3. And yet, nowhere there did we appear to be talking about friendship with the world, right? And so let's go back and look at verses 1, 2, 3. What exactly is James accusing them of, and how can that be considered friendship with the world? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So there gets to motive. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Again, we're talking about unsatisfied people seeking satisfaction. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. All of verse 1, 2, and 3 is about the world's way of trying to satisfy ourselves. And what he's telling these people is that you're going the wrong way. You are worldly. This is, in our modern world, we have terms for this. It's their worldview. Their worldview is inconsistent with their Christian practice. They must practice their religion. And so they are not practicing their religion as they should. Their worldview is askew. Many Christians in our culture, their worldview is askew. They need to hear these words. They need to think of themselves as adulterers and adulteresses, committing spiritual adultery with this world against their betrothed in heaven. So, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's what he goes on to say. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Do you not know that? Paul commands us in Romans twelve eighteen though, to live peaceably with all men. So how can us being friendly with the world not be consistent with us trying to live at peace with all men? And see, I slipped a word change in there on you. I hope you caught it. I said being friendly with the world but see friendship with the world is different than being friendly with the world isn't it you can be friendly and yet not be a friend so you can be kind to everybody you come into contact with and you're not judging them right but yet if you live out a christian lifestyle on this earth by your actions you condemn the world and they don't like it the world will not like that attitude so now you might fit in at work if you just go along to get along. You just kind of smile when it's appropriate to smile. You, you frown when it's appropriate to frown. Uh, you can fit in with anybody if you would only mirror them. Marketers have known this for generations. If, if you want to sell something to somebody, be like them. Then they'll buy it from you. They're not going to buy from you if, if you're totally unlike them, if they don't trust you, if they don't think they know you. And so your job as a marketer is to emulate them, to like what they like, to not like what they don't like. And so you're mirroring them to get the sale. And so you're, in a sense, prostituting yourself to get the sale. You're, you're pretending. You're a chameleon in order to progress your goals. Now, it's one thing if you're just trying to sell widgets, but it's another thing if you're trying to fit in, if you're trying to basically emulate their worldview so that they don't take you to task or even recognize your worldview. And we do this subtly. We do it. And we know we do it. And we reprimand ourselves for it. And we want to do better. And then next time, we might again make the same mistakes. We just fit in. We want to fit in. We want to be liked. We want to be men-pleasers. And uh, James is saying, no, no. You are at odds with this world. Get that through your heads. The church was made to be a weapon of war that is what we are we are an armory we are a war machine and yet we are told by paul in 1 corinthians that our weapons are not carnal weapons our weapons are spiritual weapons but yet we must use them to do what it is we're called to do on this earth if you are engaged in any battles on this earth and you are not making use of the spiritual weapons of war for instance the elections are coming up. If you are battling for or against politicians and you are not praying through this, spiritually attacking the enemies, spiritually upholding those that you support, then you're not doing all that you should be doing. You're not even doing primarily what you should be doing. We are engaged in spiritual war and our our weapons are spiritual. Use them, you must use them to succeed. Now, Let's go, go ahead. Actually, the meat of what I want to cover is in verses 7 and beyond. So I'm not getting there yet. But uh, I want to pause at verse 6, the second part. He gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but give, gives grace to the humble. What does it mean that God resists the proud? Well, when you read about pride and humility in the Bible, the thing you see immediately is that God is repulsed by pride. He hates pride. And another scripture says that God beholds the, proudful, the prideful from afar. I mean, you're not even near God when you're acting in pride. Psalm 101.5, uh, let me read one or two here. But Psalm 101.5 says this. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy, The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. When you think about it, when you really reflect on it, God is glorious. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet every person in the Trinity is humble, exceedingly humble. And let me give you a reference of each one of those to prove it. In Isaiah, we have this written about God the Father. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Do you see how the contrast is just so striking? the High and Holy One, that He dwells there with the humble. And He dwells there with the humble to support the humble and the contrite on earth. And now let's turn to the Son. And I think a good example of that is in Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 verses 5 through 9. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Oh, that's the wrong text. Philippians 4, 5 through 9. Oh, sorry. That's not, that's not it. And I don't have the right one written down, so... Oh, I here it is. Well, I'll try to quote it from my mind. Let this mind be in you, that which is in Christ Jesus, that though being uh, uh, holy, that he would bow down and submit himself to to others. And I can't. Two. Philippians 2. Five through, yeah. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, see, that was to just make me humble. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, And let me turn to 1 Corinthians 6, hopefully, for the one in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? That was quoted earlier. And so the Holy Spirit deigns to live in us. God in heaven above from his lofty heights dwells with the humble. And Jesus came in the flesh to be one of us. So God illustrates humility to us and he expects us to be humble as he is humble. And when you think about it, pride and humility are probably Two of, one really, they're kind of the same thing, but it's probably the thing that has done the most damage to our world. It is pride that led Satan to rebel against God in heaven. Paul warns Timothy against bringing a novice believer in to the eldership. And he says this, Not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And so you see that the devil fell into that combination through pride. Pride puffs up. Pride leads men into self-destructive behavior. It leads them not only into self-destructive behavior, but just destructive behavior generally. They destroy anything. When their ego is insulted, when their pride is insulted, they get angry and they get vengeful. It really is a suspicion of mine. I tried to look it up, but, but we just live in an age where you don't revert to biblical arguments for and against things. But I tried to look up that in domestic disputes, is pride a factor? When a man hits a woman in the home, I'm betting there's pride involved, that that man has been insulted. His pride has been insulted, and he strikes out in anger. And now, It isn't that that woman didn't know that that might happen. Men and women know how to fight. We've had thousands of years to know how to punch one another's buttons. And those women know how to to get that man upset, insult his pride, and he will then try to defend himself. And I just really wonder myself just how bad that is. I mean, how common it is that, that men and women in conflict, it's because there's this kernel of pride in there that's preventing them from getting together. There is no humility that's allowing them to mend that relationship. Now, I'd like you to share an example of a man who, with God's help, overcame pride. Uh, It's from a book that I read years ago. I I didn't uh, go try to find it yesterday because that takes a lot of time. So I'm working from memory, and my memory is very bad, but I'll wing it. And you guys who may have read it can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, this book is entitled God in the Pits. It was written by a man named Mark Ritchie. And he became a a very, very wealthy commodities trader in Chicago. But uh, he was born to Christian missionaries in Afghanistan. So he grew up in Afghanistan to a missionary family. But his dream was to be a commodities broker. I don't know if his dream was to be wealthy, but I know he wanted to be... And I I remember reading the book very vividly. He, He was driven to trade commodities in Chicago for whatever bizarre reason. But anyway... He failed in his first attempt. He had an attempt, and it was a fairly small one, but you know, I, don't, I think it cost him $150,000 or something like that. Not small to all of us, I don't think. But that rendered him off the out of Chicago. So now he has a wife and a child he has to support, and he has a friend who gets him a job driving truck. And he owns his truck. And so if you own your truck, you can make more money but you also have the responsibility of keeping that truck running. And all the expenses are yours to do so. So he owns his own truck, and he's driving all around the country, and his truck just breaks down, breaks down, breaks down. He's constantly somewhere phoning his wife, and they're just trying to scrounge up enough money to keep him running, to get this truck repaired, to get it going. And he's at his wit's end. He's a very intelligent man. He's a very ambitious man. And here he is at wit's end, living hand to mouth, driving this truck around the country. And he's frustrated with it. And he'd grown up in the church, but apparently the church wasn't a big deal to him at this point in his life. But he comes out on the street. He'd spent the night in this really poverty-stricken area of Chicago um, because that's the only place that he could find uh, room and board that he could afford. And he came out onto the street one morning, that next morning, and he looks around and he sees all these people, all these poor people, all these poor, poverty-stricken, many bitter people, and it suddenly dawns on him that he's one of them. He had always, his whole life, looked down at people like this. And suddenly, it's like as if he's outside of himself, and he's looking at himself on the street, and he realizes that he can't tell himself from anybody else. And it crushed his pride. He suddenly was overwhelmed with the awareness of sin in his heart, And God really saved him, it seems to me. But he was transformed. He was so humbled by that. And within a couple of years, God exalted him. He got him onto the Chicago Board of Trade. He and his brother formed this fabulously wealthy company that sold futures on soybeans, and he made millions and millions of dollars. And yet, this was an example of God taking him through that that lifestyle to crush him, As a person to crush that pride out of him and make him realize that he was no different than any other person that breathes air on this earth and only when he admitted that did god then give him the desires of his heart so we go on to verse 7 i got to get back there we go on to verse 7 and it starts with therefore So when a certain sentence starts with therefore, you know that it's referring back to something. And he had just said, he had quoted from Proverbs, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. In other words, because you know that God resists the proud, you must submit to him. And so only the humble will be accepted by God. So you can see that submission and humility are essential they're codependent. They're, they're, they're inseparable. In order to submit to God, you must be humble. Without humility, you cannot submit to God. It's just not possible. Submission is an act of the will. Humility is a character that you exhibit. It's a state of the heart. Submission is outward. You are showing your, your uh, obedience to someone or something. Whereas humility is that inward state that makes that possible, that makes it possible for you to do what you do in submission, to say what you say in asking someone to forgive you, for instance. That's a submission. That comes from a broken and contrite spirit. And that is what God rewards. That is what God wants in us. Proud people are not in submission to God. During their pride, in their pride, they are rebels against God. And so if you happen to be or know proud people, then you know that when they're most experiencing or you're most suffering their pride, they're far from God and God is far from them because he says that he is afar from them. Now God is repulsed by our pride, as I said. But who is not? Satan. Satan loves pride. He lives for pride. So if you are prideful, then you can know that you will be tempted by Satan to stroke that ego, to protect that pride, to revel in it. Amos 6.8 says this. God says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. God hates pride, and yet Satan loves it. So just that alone... She'd cause you to take it seriously. When we resist the devil, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Think about that. Why does the devil flee from us when we resist him? It, It doesn't really make sense. But it does when you understand how that resistance is made possible. That resistance to the devil is only possible because you're humble. You are hiding between God's legs when you're resisting the devil. You're not shouting defiance at the devil. You're hiding behind God, and he's afraid of God. He's not afraid of you. He's afraid, and he is sickened by the humility that you show to God, by the obeisance that you have for God. That sickens him. He is repulsed by that, and he wants to be far from you. Remember that. These books, uh, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, uh, Lord, uh, what's his name? Uh, It's by uh, Randy Alcorn, Lord Fowlgren's Letters, and also even some of uh, Peretti's books that engage in the demonic uh, descriptions of the angels. They all harp on this point, that the demons really are repulsed by Christians when they pray, when they are humble and in submission to God. And so keep that in mind. If you want protection from evil, then be humble towards God, and God will be near you. You will be hiding between his legs, as it were, when evil comes to try and get at you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is the verse that I've been alluding to. Uh, Psalm 138, verse 6 says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud... He knows from afar. When we resist God, He crushes us. He humbles us. But when you draw near to God, when you are humble and draw near to God, He draws near to you. In Acts, when Paul was before King Agrippa, I want to share with you something that he said. Acts 26, starting at verse 19. He said, he had just quoted what Jesus said, had told him, and then he says, "'Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance.'" So my question to you is, what works was he speaking of? What works are befitting of repentance? because I think James answers it in our text, where I stopped off at verse 7 and 8. And let me turn back there. So at James 4, beginning at verse 8, we read this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, you double-minded. Now, the Pharisees and scribes didn't like being called sinners. Jesus called them that all the time. <laughs> so it didn't prevent him from, from accusing them of this. He wasn't going along to get along. Because they didn't call themselves sinners, they called those other bad people sinners, the tax collectors and all that. But Jesus, he, of course he accepted their term for these sinners, but he also included them in his pointed finger. And so that's what I believe James is doing here. And yet one commentary that I read online, it's, it's at studylight.org, uh, had this to say. The expression, ye sinners, coming right in the middle of this, at James 4.8, forbids referring to this particular paragraph to Christians, the unmodified designation sinners, not being an appropriate address for members of the body of Christ to whom the letter is written. I don't buy that. Now, it's true that in a technical sense, we are not sinners. In a comparative sense, yes, God has fully justified us. But yet, in a very real sense, we on this earth, in the flesh, are still sinners. We still sin. And so, yes, there's a dual definition of sinners at work here. But yet, it's at work here. Here, he's speaking to Christians. He's saying, you Christians... Your, your religion, your walk with God, is not squaring with what you're supposed to be doing. You should be faithful, and you're not. You're being disobedient. And so he tells them, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And what does that mean? It means stop sinning. Stop en- enjoying the sin. Stop not repenting of the sin. That's what cleanse your hands, you sinners, means. And he's again quoting from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, that was the ritual washing, right? That was purifying them. And that's what he's telling these Christians to do. Purify yourselves. Repent of your sins. Repent to God. Sacrifice those sins. Get rid of them. And then he goes on and he says, purify you hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands. So he's got the outward sins. And then he says, purify you hearts. Now get at the motives. What is it that is driving you to sin? It's not the devil made you do it, like Flip Wilson would always say. No, it's it's you. You're driving yourself to sin. And so, it's something in your heart, it's something in your will, it's something that's not right. And he says, "Fix it. Purify that. Go find it and kill it." So we're to do that. We're to cleanse our hands, we're to purify our hearts. And we're to stop being double-minded. See, even though we're Christians, we want to protect certain sins that we engage in. We like those sins. We enjoy those sins. They are a part of us. And they're like removing a part of us when we sacrifice them. And yet that's exactly what God wants you to do. He wants you to go after what you consider your most precious possessions, these sins that you hide, these sins that you're reluctant to divulge to others, because you know that they will then want to hold you accountable for this. And then he goes on to verse 9. And this is perhaps a little uncharacteristic of what, what Paul is often telling us to do. But James says, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Be gloomy, be gloomy, Gus's. He's not saying that you are to do this forevermore. He's just saying that if you really don't know the depth of your sin, then go there now. Go there, figure out who you are, lament and mourn over that sin, but then sacrifice it and go to God. And then you'll be joyful. Then you will be happy. Then you will be at peace, but not before then, not until then. You have to sacrifice those cherished sins. Verse 10 ends beautifully. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. I gave that story earlier about a beautiful example of God doing that for that man. Only once he was fully crushed, only once he had given up, could God then restore him. Would God then reward him with his uh, life's delight? Probably a desire that God Himself had placed there. For him to be this commodities trader because he went on to be a wonderful supporter of missionaries he took his millions of dollars of income from that he made on his soybean business and channeled it to building missions around the world matthew 23 verse 12 jesus said whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted proverbs 16 18 says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall Many of us often abbreviate that, and I think it's okay. Pride goes before a fall. When I was uh, 17, I think, maybe it was even the day of my birthday. Anyway, I was turning 18. I was an unbeliever, so keep that in mind. Um, But I had a 69 Dodge Polaro that I just loved, and yet I was going to go scrap it. It was running fine, but I needed money. And I had three weeks before I was going into the Marine Corps, and I wanted to go have a huge party for my birthday. And so I wanted to go buy a keg. And so the only way I ever knew how to get rid of cars at that age was to scrap them. I don't know why I never tried selling cars. They were worth a lot more, but, but it's just odd. It's just I was so used to wrecking cars and having to scrap them that I just thought that was the only people that would give me money for a car. But, but I took a fine-running 69 Dodge Polaro that was really cool, and I I I tried to take the battery out because I felt it was worth saving, but it kept stopping, you know, I didn't understand how cars worked. I didn't know they needed a battery. And I would try to get it started and pull the battery and then it would stall. So I put it back in and I drove it to the dealer. But I was there with my two friends and we had been best friends for two years and we'd partied together, had a lot of good times. But uh, I had painted the hood of my Polara black. And before I drove into the place to give it to them, I jumped up on the hood. I don't know what possessed me, but I jumped up on the hood and I took something. I don't even know what it was. Oh, my car key. And I scrawled a message to God on the hood of that car. And I said, dear God. Now, honestly, I didn't know God, but yet I knew he existed. But I didn't know him. And uh, yet I jumped up on the hood of my car and I scrawled in the black paint that I'd put on there a few months earlier, Dear God, please forgive Chip and Eddie and me for our sins. We didn't know what we were doing. And uh, I was laughing as I was doing this, but yet now I look back on it and I just think, Wow, you know, God was just amazing in convicting me of sin, even as I'm jumping out of my hood doing something that I thought would be fun. But yet, what possessed me to do that? So I say, dear God, please forgive uh, Chip and Eddie and and me for our sins. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, Amen. I I don't think I even knew to say in Jesus' name at the time. I'd never been to a Protestant church in my life. I had only been to a few Catholic masses. But anyway, um, I share that because that to me, was not necessarily true humility on my part, but I certainly wanted to be humble. I I wanted to be in a relationship with God. I didn't know God, but yet I knew he existed. And even for a couple of years before then, I I became a Christian two years later, even during that two years, I would meet people who would talk to me about Christ, and I would converse with them. I, I just honestly was real puzzled about who God was. I didn't know why our world was so messed up, if there was a good God. And you hear that all the time now. People don't understand why the world is so messed up. They don't really understand how sin infiltrated and God has allowed it to persist, and yet He has given the antidote of Christ. That's your job. That's my job. We're to talk to people that don't understand why this world's all messed up and just give them that simple story. That's the truth. All of what they kind of regard as fairy tales is the truth. And we're to share it with them. I want to share another uh, story with you. This is not mine. Actually, it's not a story. But it is a point of advice from Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma. He went there in the early 1800s. And uh, he was asked by a foreign missionary association back in the States in New York for advice to young missionaries. And he writes in his letter that he kind of usually ignored such things, but this letter must have been especially appealing to him. And so he wrote these ten points. I, I won't read them all to you, but I want to read you the point that he made about pride. And this is the seventh point, and it's this. Beware of pride, not the pride of proud men, but the pride of humble men. That secret pride, which is apt to grow out of the consciousness that we are esteemed by the great and the good. That pride sometimes eats out the vitals of religion before its existence is suspected. In order to check its operations, it may be well to remember how we appear in the sight of God and how we should appear in the sight of our fellow man if all were known. Endeavor to let all be known. Confess your faults freely and as publicly as circumstances will require or admit. When you have done something of which you are ashamed, and by which perhaps some person has been injured and what man is exempt, be glad not only to make reparation, but improve the opportunity for subduing your pride." I thought that was excellent advice. Actually, all of his points are excellent and they're very, very practical. Uh, And this was a man who spent like two years in a Burmese prison every day that drag him up by his heels and allow only the tips of his shoulders to touch the floor. Uh, He about lost his faith during that period of time. He thought they they accused him of being an English spy during the English-Burmese War of the early 1800s, and and he really paid the price for it. But through that, through all of that, his strength in in God, his faith in God, was just strengthened immeasurably. I want to close with a quote from St. Augustine. It's very brief. It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is intended to change us, and we thank you for that process. It is amazing to us that the Holy Spirit can come into us and change us, rip out hearts of stone, rip out all of that sin that plagues us and fill it with love, uh, fill it with forgiveness. Father, we pray that you would be with us now, that we would honor you with our lives, that we would go forth from this place uh, filled with humility, not pride. And we pray, Lord, that in the week ahead that we would see it in ourselves, that we would acknowledge it, that we would fight against it. We want to be near you And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us humble so that you will remain near us. We ask you to be with us in Christ's name. Amen.